I went over to Scotland about six weeks ago. We went on a whiskey distillery tour and it was just, it was sad and fantastic. And he was a, like a beautiful man, wonderful man. Subscribe to the Rugby Stream on the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now then, you're very welcome back. Sunday Papers coming at you. Very happy to say Gavin Casey from The 42 is here in studio. Hello. How are you, Joe? Great to have you in. And Fionn Davenport, broadcaster, travel journalist, and most importantly, a member of Golf Weekly here in studio. Good afternoon. Great to have you in. Oh, thanks, Joe. Good to have you. Exciting times. Sitting outside and I realised that I haven't been in the studio for a very long time. Yeah. 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 And it's nice to be back. It's nice to see people. Well, indeed. Not on a screen, I mean. Yes. The back pages, so we'll run you through headlines. Uh, Mail on Sunday, no particular order here. It's a picture of Harry Kane, a training we are ready, is what Kane says. And Southgate says England will rise to meet higher expectations as World Cup gets real. We have the sun and it's a sweet spot. This is Gareth Southgate. He's talking about England's uh, penalty situation. So he's backing, uh, well, various players to do well should penalty shootout come, not least uh, the likes of Marcus Rashford and Bukayo Saka and Jordan Pickford. So they've been talking a lot about penalties, England, actually, in the build-up to today's game. Picture of uh, Southgate smiling, and it says, Smile high, Southgate bids to lift uh, spirits. He's uh, challenged the team to lift their nation's winter blues. We have Messi adorning a couple of front pages, as you might expect, given events last night. Messi's touch of magic is the Sunday Independent. Australia go down fighting in thrilling battle. And beneath that, the story is England uh, moving into their bonus territory. Not sure how much a story this is, really. England players will land bonuses of around £400,000 each if they win the World Cup, a.k.a. a week's wages for a lot of them. Mm. And then Sunday Times, we have Messi still got it. 2-1 win. Messi scores again to set up Argentina against Holland in quarterfinals. And beneath that, Southgate backs Saka and Rashford for penalty shootouts. So, World Cup dominating back pages as you might expect uh, we might start Roy McIlroy if that is okay and then we'll get into World Cup business we've been talking World Cup with Brian Kerr so we'll give people a mini break this is part two Roy McIlroy sitting down with Paul Kimmage pages two through to seven of the Sunday Independent part one was last week part two is this week again covers a lot of uh, territory to give you a general sense of things he um talked about his play through a lot of this year because the last couple of years were covered in part one. So, for instance, you might remember if you're a big golf fan in uh, January in Abu Dhabi, he had a great chance to win and he put his fairway wood into the water in 18. He had a long time to think about it. So to give you a sense of how he reacted to that, this is relatively early in the piece they pick up at this point. He says, I was properly pissed off afterwards. I walked into the locker room, my phone in my hand and I effed it against the locker. There was a bit of chat going on. People were packing up, getting ready to leave. It was like a gunshot. The place went completely silent. The phone had a cover, but it smashed everywhere anyway. I kept it for a while to remind myself of how SH1T I felt for not winning that day. On they go. Uh, Sergio Garcia comes up. And so, um, well, the point is made that Tiger Woods doesn't like uh, Sergio either. And there's uh, talk of the falling out between those two over live golf how did you realise he was going to live and uh, I mean this doesn't reflect uh, brilliantly on Sergio he came up to McElroy on the range and he said he'd gotten a new plane and if I wanted to ride with him to that first live event in London I was welcome 
And when did your relationship sour is the question. On the Friday of the US Open, I woke up to a text that was sent at half five that morning. Sergio had an early tea time. I didn't. I woke up to this text basically telling me to shut up about live, blah, blah, blah. I was pretty offended. I sent him back a couple of daggers. That was it. And back to his own game then. He uh, really explains in a lot of detail how he managed to turn his game around and the effect of the ball is extraordinary. We had known this. I mean, the the problem with uh, interviewing Rory is he gives this kind of depth in many ways in real time across his career, but there's definitely more detail on what happened with the ball. So this is, if you were, again, if you're a casual fan, McElroy's season after a terrible 2021 really took off at Augusta in a th- with a thrilling final round. So it seems on the eve of that tournament, he changed the ball. So he was playing the week before Augusta in Texas and he was on the range warming up with Pro V1s, the tightest ball, McElroy's uh, tailor-made ball. And he started thinking, oh, that's nice, he said. And I, I didn't think anything of it, but I'd been having a few issues with the ball. Paul Kimmages asks, asks, are you compelled to use that ball? He says, no, but I'll always give a good effort and try and make it work. And so in the end, he realises he hates the ball he's using. He goes to TaylorMade, says, I can't use this ball anymore. They suggest an older version of the ball he's using. And he starts using that ball and it's much, much better, particularly in the wind. And he says to Paul Kimmage, there are some stats on it. Before Augusta, I was ranked 207th on the PGA Tour from inside 125 yards. Since Augusta, I've been ranked number one. To which Paul Kimmage says, the effing ball. Yes, yeah, says McElroy. That is ridiculous, says Paul Kimmage. I know, says Roy McElroy. It is extraordinary the difference the ball made. And just uh, two last quick points, again, to try and give a, a vague summary of this piece, which is impossible to do. You really just have to read it. But he's talking about, for me, I mean, the most interesting, if you're, if you're into golf and figures like Tiger Woods are of interest to you. Uh, their relationship, it seems, has really deepened since Woods's uh, car crash. And the really extraordinary thing is that Woods reached out to McElroy just before the Ryder Cup when McElroy was in the depths. So he said, I went to visit him about six weeks after the accident. A lot of guys did. And then Woods reached out to McElroy. He said, look, I think I can help you. This is the Woods text to McElroy. I think I can help you. You should be winning three or four times a year. You know where I am if you want to catch up on a few things. And eventually they do catch up. And and the point that Woods made was that he could help McElroy with his wedges. He'd been watching McElroy play and he said, I think I can show you a few things I've learned over the years that will help you. To which Paul Kimmich says, wow. McElroy says, yeah. And I mean, it takes McElroy, this text comes in September and it's only in March, around the time he's making the discovery with the ball, that he goes uh, to Woods' house and... I feel like this is, I don't know, Yoda and Luke Skywalker kind of moment. <laughs> so it, McElroy says, because a theme of this piece is the chosen one, that Rory is now the chosen one. And McElroy says, talk about the chosen one. Some of the stuff Tiger can do with a golf ball is insane. His hands, body, awareness. He showed me some shots. I remember going to Bay Hill afterwards and telling Harry about it. Wait till I show you this, uh, he said. So... Uh, I would give good money to get more detail on specifically what Woods showed McElroy. I hope there is an hour-long press conference in due course where McElroy expands and all that. And uh, they talk about various other things. Money comes up, the importance of money to McElroy. Uh, why uh, he's so peeved with Greg Norman, which we can come on to as well. It seems um, him and Norman had made up after initially falling out and then 
they sent each other a few text messages but then Norman went and uh, talked about McElroy saying he was brainwashed in the press and uh, McElroy resolved to be uh, in his words a pain in the ass to Norman at every turn uh, going forward so that is an attempt to sum up several thousand words Fionn you're an avid golf fan you're an avid golfer uh, this is right up your street so yeah. talk to me what's your the Woods text McElroy is extraordinary yeah it's it, it's very interesting. I mean, the overall piece, and as you say, it's a mammoth piece of journalism. It's like over two weeks. It's like it's New Yorker length stuff. Like this is like as in-depth as it goes. Um, before getting into the weeds, I suppose what it does, it really positions Rory McElroy as one of the most interesting sports stars we've ever produced. Whether you're into golf or not, his role, his position within the sport, um, his accomplishments, but also... The, the kind of strident views that he's taken on over the last year, particularly in relation to the challenge to the PGA Tour posed by Live Golf. And so it kind of, you're looking at it and you go, wow, this merits, like, I mean, you're looking, I mean, there's so much. I, 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 I'm trying to think, I was trying to make a list of the, of the Irish sports stars that would merit this kind of in-depth. Roy Keane, obviously. Um, but really, that's the kind of high end we're talking about. So, I mean, you summarised it pretty, pretty well. The, the Tiger Woods stuff is interesting because he's positioned as the chosen one. So as Tiger's fades, so Rory McIlroy comes into, in, into the spotlight. But yet, despite the best efforts of the advertisers and despite the best efforts of many Rory supporters and Tiger supporters to see him as the chosen, they're polar opposites. Whereas Tiger's greatness was exclusively on the golf course. This is a guy with, you know, 15 major championships, 83 PGA Tour victories, uh, records that will not likely be broken, certainly in my lifetime. Rory McIlroy is the, the outstanding talent of his generation for early majors and then just eight, nine years of, of major disappointment, despite the fact that he wins the FedEx Cup. He's the leading money winner. He's the, you know, he wins. He constantly wins, but just seems to fail at the majors. Yeah. Um, and so it seems to me that like this, this chosen one stuff is interesting because it's like, it's almost as though Rory... It's like I'm not going to like Rory's career has to be judged, unfortunately, by a different metric now. And it's it's his impact on the game, his role within the game, particularly at this difficult time for the PGA Tour. Um, and so the idea that Tiger Woods is going to ring him up and goes, look, basically, you have a lousy wedge game. Like this is one of the preternaturally talented golfers of all time who for a number of years was just his wedges were abysmal. Yeah. I mean, like, this was an ongoing saga yeah. around McElroy for several years. Yeah, absolutely. Nick Faldo said the reason he'll never win at Augusta is not so much his putting, which people point to, it's his wedge game. It's his wedge game. You have to know your distances to the millimetre, otherwise you're on the wrong side of the slope, you're off, you're dead. And so September 2nd, 2021, for Woods to text him, I'd love to sit down in the range and run something by you that will make controlling your wedges easier after the Ryder Cup. Notice he said after the Ryder Cup. I'm not going to help you. <laughs> I'm not going to help you for the Ryder Cup. Say. But I mean, what it is that he that it helped him with his wedges, I can't wait to, you know, maybe it'll be the Golf Channel who will sit down and do a thousand words but, just on that. Because for McElroy, this was becoming beyond frustrating. He, was, he snapped a club mid-tournament after you know, yet right. another wedge from 130 yards that had missed the green. And so this was the big talking point around him. I don't think there's another player on the planet who could, as you are alluding to, who could text Rory McIlroy and say, do you want some tips on your wedges? 
it's it's like this is like I said Yoda and Luke Skywalker if you're into your golf and the fabric of the game and you know the, the mantle is handed down from certain grades to others this is you know this is Bobby Jones calling Nicholas that, that's what this is there is and a strong so sense of that for sure and I mean like and it's interesting because Kimmich goes okay give me the chronology and, and McElroy responds oh I'm not good on chronology I mean it's clear that he it's like he's telling you it happened but he doesn't my my read on it is is like that that he doesn't really want to go into the weeds about what exactly Tiger said. So like for all of Kimmage's unquestionable power of persuasion and being able to sit down and get Rory to now, in fairness, Rory Rory's not shy it's to good talk. Interview, yeah. But it, but he he can really draw out of his subject. But even in this, and 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 like you, I was the same. I was like, what did he tell him? Yeah. Mm. Like what what was the thing that he said? He goes, listen. You know, you're such a great player, but your wedges are rubbish. Here's how to fix it. <laughs> Perhaps he doesn't want to go into depth on it, Rory, because then you would have to say, yeah, it turns out I was doing that wrong, doing yeah, that wrong. Yeah, yeah. previous five years. That's conceivable. But it's interesting that you say there's probably not another player on the planet that could have approached McElroy and, and said that to him and even lent uh, the prospect of advice to him, right? But I wonder, and I'm interested in both of your thoughts on it because you're, mm. you're two golf men, like, would Woods... Uh, be likely to do that with other players or is this truly no. the case well, that, the, that he sees McElroy as the chosen one like that's uh, the equally stunning part of this is yeah. the transformation in Woods yeah. because people have wondered from afar I think quite correctly is the change the softening that we've seen in Woods over much of the last five years something of an act something mm. of a response to the corporate world and uh, you know to what extent is it is it sincere I've always thought it has been sincere I think he's been through an extraordinary amount and it can't but change you the fact that he's privately yeah. offering help to another player is so at odds with the Tiger Woods of the previous 20 years. It also, he would barely say hello to yeah. opponents. And this is, this is a player whose entire aura was, was built on destroying you in yeah. every possible way, giving you nothing. Yeah. Not, like, like there wasn't politeness. There wasn't like, the, like he was always, you know, his course manners were always very good, but he gave you nothing. And 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 he had you beaten before you'd even stepped onto the first tee. I wondered, is it an, an acknowledgement as well that Woods knows his days are done? Oh, yeah. I, I think mean, it absolutely is. Of yeah. course it is. Would he do this when the prospect of being on the back nine at Augusta versus Rory McIlroy remains live in his head? I don't think I so. It. I don't think so. I really doubt it. Like, it's the closest thing I've ever seen, ever seen to Woods saying I've retired, is helping yeah, someone absolutely. like that. <laughs> it's interesting that way, isn't it? And like, even at the very start of the piece, like, as somebody who would, you know, I'm almost like a, a glory hunting golf fan in that I'll follow the majors and the Ryder Cup even vaguely over the weekend and like I'll be glued to it on a Sunday, right? Yeah. And, I, and I do read about it, um, but like very early in the piece, uh, McElroy tells Kimmage that uh, during the Tour Championship when he overturned the six-shot deficit on Scotty Scheffler, yeah. uh, when he was applying the pressure on, on Scheffler, uh, he says, it's probably one of the first times I felt my presence made a difference. I'd never really felt like that before. And Kimmage rightly points out that the notion sounds preposterous. Mm. Uh, that's ridiculous, Kimmage says to McElroy. And Rory goes, I don't know. I guess I'm now at an age where I'm a bit older than these guys. And they maybe looked up to me at one time. Uh, and that's where Kimmage possibly for the first time is, is kind of thinking along the lines of like, well, maybe there's an added aura to you now that you are the chosen one as well. Like, not only in that Wood seems to have identified you as somebody who can pick up 
his mantle to a degree or insofar as is possible with the remainder of McElroy's prime, right? Like he's probably not going to get to 15 majors, but I mean, he's not going to, right? But you want to get like as close as possible and almost become like the transcendent cultural figure that he is becoming, but that Woods absolutely became. And maybe it's that, you know, his being now this, um, this icon of the game, not only for his performances, might sort of carry a weight on the course as well, where if he is breathing down your neck, it's like, oh, here comes Rory. And it's, it's not just that it's Rory, the, the fabulous golfer, it's, it's Rory, the international golf star, and undoubtedly uh, the biggest name in Irish sport and the biggest name in golf, mm. which has been like accentuated now over the last 12 months. Mm. There, and it's a funny one, because obviously this is a piece written for just a general sports lover and not the avid golf fan like yourself, myself, Joe exclusively so there's but there's some very interesting little tidbits so I like at one point here's one right so Kimmich says oh but you're close to Tiger who doesn't like Phil Phil Mickelson and Rory responds and he doesn't like Sergio either and you're like oh okay hang on a second whoa when did Tiger not I mean we all thought for years that Tiger and Phil had this animosity that yeah. was built on competition but that they'd become friends in the last few years that they did the match together that they yeah. were like the two kind of aging giants of the game who were had fined you know who were like I find that kind of you know, interesting it's like oh so we're going official on the Tiger Sergio yeah so the Tiger <laughs> and, and also the Tiger the Tiger Sergio one is perhaps less surprising but given Sergio's comments a number of years ago exactly but the Tiger Phil one I, I thought that you know because particularly like you know Tiger was incredible when Amy when Phil's wife was sick a number of years ago Tiger reached out and they had you know they had a rapprochement of some kind mm. so I thought it was interesting that like Rory doesn't blink and he goes yeah and he doesn't like Sergio either unless maybe historically they're talking historically but I know Perhaps. it's, it's um, yeah. and, and you I mean you talked the stuff about the golf ball which which I find bizarre that like a player of Rory's genius and calibre within the game would struggle with a golf ball that didn't suit him for as long as he did. But he's had a whole career of questionable equipment choices. The Nike driver that he didn't like for however long. I do want, I mean, so are his wedges sorted out because the ball or because of Woods? the, The cynic in me wants to say that there is an interesting narrative as a result of all of this. The, you know, the great one handing over the mantle of greatness to the chosen one and so and so the torch passes to a new generation and 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 I feel that there's there's a hint of performance performance about that that I'm not in, I've never really been entirely convinced of that they that obviously that Rory is talented that Rory is the great player of his generation but that he isn't he just isn't Tiger Woods well no one's Tiger Woods and he wouldn't claim to be Tiger Woods no 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 he wouldn't but the idea that the the sponsors are kind of now kind of investing in in Rory because you know nature abhors a vacuum and with the as Tiger Woods departs the stage you know they all frantically look around going who's the guy who's going to be well that was a big part at St Andrews remember when Woods was coming up the 18th and McElroy was getting down the first and like uh, TV certainly played up that sense of the baton being handed and mm. you know it's, it's seen from a movie but it always strikes me as it's, it's not the baton of competitive greatness that's being handed it's the baton of being the name yes. the name yeah, on the I likes think, of my lips right, yeah. as, as yeah. a casual observer of golf and it's 
funny. Look, I grew up in a generation where uh, you would have been playing, well, as you probably did as well, playing like EA Sports Tiger Woods on PlayStation back way back when. And do you remember the mantle was handed over by EA Sports to McElroy for maybe a year or two where it was Rory McElroy PGA Tour at a time when Tiger had faded through injury and, and through off-the-course dramas yeah. and so on. And it, it sort of almost didn't feel right at that time. If EA Sports were still making a game, which they're not, a golf game that is, uh, it would feel now right to me, like for the younger generation who would be playing a golf game, that it would be Rory McIlroy PGA Tour. Yes, like, yes, he feels sure. like that sort of figure now more so than anybody else in the game of golf. We've got to take a short break. We will continue this in just one moment. Fionn Davenport, Gav Casey, stay with us. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Welcome back, Gavin Casey and Fionn Davenport still here in studio. Just to pick up where we left off for a moment. Rory McIlroy, part two in conversation with Paul Kimmage. <laughs> to be fair, every time I'm glancing at this, I'm saying, oh, that was interesting too. <laughs> so, for instance, before we touch on Norman, McElroy talking about money was just incredibly uh, striking and intimate and it's, you know, uh, an aspect which makes these pieces so uh, enjoyable. So they're talking money and I guess the, the reason money comes up is that a big part of the reason players have gone to leave has been the money. So, uh, you know, when did money really become yeah real for you, I suppose? And McElroy remembers when he was 18 and he just turned pro and he had a couple of sponsors and he said I didn't have a credit card I'd been given a debit card for cash I put it into an ATM at 18 I hit check balance and there was 250 grand in the account I was like holy SH1T I'd no clue about money when I turned pro it was the last thing in my mind and Paul Kimmich says the question was real money to which Rory says I'd say the first time I felt I'd made real real money was after the US Open in 2011 that put me in a different stratosphere we're talking 10 million pounds or whatever it was to which Paul Kimmich says, 10 million. Rory, yeah, I paid over 5 million in tax to the HMRC that year. And that's why I moved offshore. Paul, to Monaco, yeah. When was the Nike deal? Rory, that conversation with them started around August 2012. Paul says, terms of the deal reported to be 200 to 250 million over 10 years. Uh, Rory says, the first deal was five years, half that number. Paul Kimmich, so we're talking 100 to 150 million. Rory, over a five-year period, that was five years into my career. So, I mean, his uh, extraordinary. He talks about how he set financial goals as a 22-year-old. Where do you want to be when you're 25? Where do you want to be when you're 30, etc.? And he kept hitting the goals early. As in, his aim for when he was 30, he hit when he was 25. They had to reassess things, come up with new numbers. So he's making a lot of money. And what he says of the difference it makes, I may live in a bigger house, but I still use the same four rooms. I don't do anything differently. And maybe the surroundings or whatever are nicer, but... Tell me what this money is going to do for you that you don't already do, is what he says of the difference between now and any number of years ago or those who are going to live. And he says, you know, the money was of no compensation when he was consoling himself after the Ryder Cup or after the Open. And I guess that's true, but I suppose he's, <laughs> to be fair to him, he's not doing that awful thing that a, a very wealthy person can do and, and, and not saying the money doesn't make a difference. I think what he's saying is at a certain point... Yeah, it stops making a difference. The money makes no difference. And he has been at that point for, well, I would say to since 2011, 2012 territory. Once you go past 100 million, I would think another 20 million doesn't make any difference. And he's been smart enough to get that. 
Yeah, uh, to be honest, a lot of uh, what he says there is, of course, alien to me. But uh, I think. If, How did you feel when you hit the 10 million versus your 100 million? You know? You know, to me, it's really not about the money. You no, know, it's just no. about the pursuit of it's, greatness. It's about the journalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's about the work. I think, in fairness, and this is not a knock on golf by any stretch of the imagination, his parents would have um, had to work extremely hard in order to uh, afford him the career that he's got on to have. But when he talks at the very start of that, before he checks his balance of, uh, about not really having any concept of money at all, that's a luxury that clearly he could afford at that time in his life. Whereas maybe if we were talking about somebody from a, a different sport, um, they would have had a very acute understanding of money and, and the need for it at that age. You know, and, and again, that's not a knock on him or anything. That's just the circumstances in which he grew up. And I think maybe because he wasn't necessarily want for it uh, to a, a massive degree when he was younger. Um, he's just had a steady appreciation for it throughout his life, or at least he's developed one, and, and it's not necessarily the case that um, it has changed him the way it might if you had absolutely nothing growing up and it was bestowed upon him. I, I think there's something quite charming about when he says that, when he gives that example of checking his bank balance at the age of 18, because lest we forget, you know, this is a guy who'd been anointed you know, to greatness from the age of nine or ten. So, you know, he 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 was definitely going to be like a major major star. But I, like, I can't move on from that. Like for me, two hundred fifty, and then for for Paul Kimmage to kind of go, no, 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 no real money. I'm like two hundred fifty grand. That is real money. Um, but it, it's the old Spike Milligan line, isn't it? He goes, look, I know money doesn't bring you happiness, but I'd love the chance to find out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and at times, and it doesn't come up here. At times, Rory has made comments about how much he's made when he's got into bars with people or. There was one of the matches where he made a quip after holding a putt about, you know, uh, well, I did it for X million last week in the FedEx and stuff. So he's not unaware either of. But I, but I also wonder if, you know, as much as this, I have no doubt this is entirely how he feels. Yeah. And how how money, as you as as you both have said, once you reach a certain point, it just you know becomes irrelevant, um, or the extra bit becomes irrelevant. But I wonder if there is an appointed nature to the comment, particularly in relation that one of the biggest accusations made against the live golfers is that they went for greed. Mm. Yeah. And so he's saying it's like, I mean, because elsewhere in the article, he does point out the idea is that, look, you know, the idea about winning stuff, about really challenging yourself, which is Tiger refrain, because Tiger had exactly the same comment a few months ago, is that like you guys just going for, you know, $150 million. like Guaranteed. He had an issue with the fact that it's guaranteed, right? Yeah, with yeah. The live guys. he did, yeah. Uh, whereas he's, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt him, but it, it, that, that interested me as, as, again, like somebody who wouldn't be as but familiar again, with McElroy as you boys it, are. It's a luxury that McElroy can afford to have. It's a luxury no, that totally. Tiger can afford to have. So you can take that lofty position. And there's also the fact that the PGA Tour has really scrambled in the last few months is to guarantee money for its yeah. top stars. So, you know, the PIP, that, you know, performance incentive programme, like, you know... Guys, like, I mean, yes, you do it for the glory, you do it for the wins, you do it for the trophies, etc. But you're doing it for the money, you know, <laughs> of course you're doing it for the money. And I think, Joe, and I've, I'm familiar with the couple of occasions, say, where he has mentioned, like, how much a, a pot was worth to him on a given day. And you'd sort of ask yourself, well, what is it really worth to you when it makes absolutely no material difference to your life at that point? But I think money to some of these guys at the very, very top echelon of, of their sport is almost just another layer of competition, right? It's mm. like, this is what I earn compared to the guys who are on the course with me on, on this day. It's like, you don't uh, you don't necessarily even need to view it as money, but almost like points, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was worth more to me because I was better than you on this day. Yeah. 
as a final point then the Norman dynamic I had wondered for a lot of the last year why has he got such beef yeah. with Norman because a few times he's really gone for him obviously when he called for him to exit stage left and before that when he won a tournament and he passed Norman in number of career wins standing on the green being interviewed he made a point of saying how go- good it was to move past Norman yeah. I was thinking how could they possibly have beef so it seems it's just well, it stemmed initially from Norman being condescending in McElroy's eyes when the PGL, which was another effort to break away from golf, came up and McElroy spoke out against it and he felt Norman was very condescending towards him. We, maybe you'll understand one day all this SH1ITE is what Rory says. And then fast forward this year, the documentary on ESPN, The Shark, was on about uh, Norman coming up short at the Masters and Rory watched it and thought, you know, I'm going to send a text I know about our differences and they exchanged some nice text messages and agreed that they had some differences on where they think golf should go. But, you know, game respects game and all that kind of thing. And Rory then said a couple of weeks went by and he was saying that I'd been brainwashed. And Rory says, you know what? I'm going to make it my business now to be as much of a pain in his arse as possible. So that is the McElroy philosophy on Norman and he's certainly followed through on that. Yeah, That's where it comes from, if you've been wondering. It's... It, it definitely is like you I was wondering is this like you know they're two different they're different generations so it's both petty and wildly entertaining it is <laughs> it's, the, it's the perfect sweet spot um, but Norman has form here because uh, Norman fell out with Tiger uh, over everyone it seems yeah and so he really doesn't seem to be very very popular at all with a lot of the uh, his fellow pros um, and there are echoes of that fallout where when Tiger moved to Jupiter in, in West Palm Beach first and uh, like Norman expected he goes you're you're now in my patch you know come sit at the foot of the king you have to trip. and Tiger's like yeah no I'm not going to do that no and 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 that led to that led to coldness between them that that endures to this day so it's interesting is, is that Norman has spoke at his upset at that yeah that he thought we're going to be bosom buddies yeah because you know this is and and for like lest we forget you know Norman was number one for 330 odd weeks you know he was the dominant player of the 1990s but Tiger's eclipsed them all because he is the Sun King. But um, what's interesting is, is that like, you know, Rory reached out after watching Shark on ESPN the week after Augusta and he's like, you know, I really feel it amazing, you know. And and then for, I don't know, I wonder if if that's exactly the way it happened, you got to go, Norman, what are you like? What, yeah. like you're, do you read the room, don't friend? Don't brainwashed publicly yeah. a few weeks later. Just, just before they got onto the Norman part of, the interview, McElroy makes it just very briefly a, a, an interesting comment to Kimmage in that he says like the relighting of the fire wasn't just on the golf course this year and it's it's in relation to actually when he called it Mickelson over the live thing to begin with and you know that's what I love about McElroy as just a sports fan, as an Irish sports fan you can almost track his personal growth because he'll tell you about it as it's happening Yeah, and it's interesting that he makes that um, or he draws those lines between his growth off the course and on it so that's pages two to seven, Sunday Independent, available online. I suspect US media waking up to this now will be devouring it as well. This For will sure. be uh, plastered all over the Golf Channel as well. It's really well worth a read and it's a um, brilliant interview. So that's McElroy. World Cup is everywhere. I think it's it's a much better week for the World Cup papers-wise than it was last week. Last week, we were still finding our way into this tournament. There was still a, a confusion as to whether the focus of the pieces should be about off-the-pitch issues or on-the-pitch issues. I think the drama of this week has just been so extraordinary that the papers have dived two feet in, no pun intended, and said, well, let's just um, mm. focus on, on what's going on. 
on the tournament. So match reports are plenty on last night, night's games, for instance. Lots of good stuff. So, uh, Like on the Argentina-Australian game, uh, Jonathan Liu has a great line where he talks about Argentina's press. He says, their press was surprisingly light. Not so much a press, indeed a series of polite inquiries. Uh, which is a great line. And Dan McDonald was at Netherlands USA and he was talking about Dutch TV halftime. Netherlands are 2-0 up and Marco van Basten is in studio saying, as a football lover, I ask myself, what am I looking at? <laughs> Zero initiative. So the Dutch hate what Van Gaal is doing, but it's working uh, thus far. So the match reports are plenty for starters. Messi on all the front pages. The the, the Dutch criticism makes me laugh. It it's, reminds me of this that French maxim of like, yes, yes, I realise it works in practice, but does it work in theory? <laughs> it's uh, uh, which which is is very good. Yeah, it's the old you know French obsession with existentialism and philosophy. Um, the the messy stuff is very interesting because it's it's as much about the romance that Messi has to offer. You know, here he is. He, he the first half in the match. He walked, he did very, very little until the Australian defender decided to have a go at him on the sideline. But he reminds me a lot of, um, I don't know if you guys have seen Succession, the last series of Succession where you have Brian Cox, who does very, very little. And but everything orbits around him. So everybody's acting around him. And then every so often, Brian Cox delivers one of those killer lines that just, you cannot draw your attention from him. And so, and so Messi, I see, I see Messi like that, you know? I mean, the second half, he, some of the runs, the little mazy runs, those, those balls he laid on for Lautaro Martinez and, and the goal, of course. But it, he, because we're, everybody who is there and isn't supporting their own nation still left wants Argentina to win. Yeah, including myself. Including yeah. me as well. And it's it's why. It's because he represents the best version of football. It's that that kind of mind-numbing genius, but always in service of the team. And and there's something romantic about it all and wonderful. And I think that's reflected in all the coverage, in all of the match reports. There's just Messi the genius even though he's 35 and I don't know if you noticed but there was a couple of occasions in the second half where long balls were put over the top and there was like a one-on-one between Messi and the defender and there was never ever ever was Messi going to win that race yeah. mm. just when I thought I was uh, you know, I couldn't take another succession analogy in my life you may have come up with the best one <laughs> yeah. ever heard <laughs> well, I love about, about that as well is that at a certain point his character they will presume him to be senile and, and pretty yeah. much finished and yeah. then he comes roaring back and yeah. it turns out like he's, he's still running the show and uh, I, I think that uh, exactly as you say if you're like the romance around Messi drives me to support him at this World Cup but also the God. disrespect with which he's been discussed within the context of World Cups bothers me. Like, if you go back to 2014, to my, like, uh, as far as I remember it, and I, he might have won player of the tournament maybe a little bit unjustifiably that, that time, but like, he dragged Argentina to that final. Uh, they, they were a couple of Gonzalo Higuain chances away from winning it, and we'd be having such a different conversation about him now. He already would have emulated Diego Maradona. Maybe he'd be going for a second. Maybe he wouldn't be playing at all, right? But I think... Um, there is a degree to which uh, it follows him that he hasn't necessarily delivered at World Cups when in actual fact, to my mind, he already has uh, at several key junctures in two or three poor enough Argentina teams. And this is now the final furlong and he'll have to keep doing it based on what we've seen of them so far. Oh, they're very unconvincing, Argentina. I am in, 
I even hesitate to say it. I'm in a po-faced minority of one, I would say, in that I watch Messi at the moment and all I can think of is this year's decision to take all that Saudi money and to plaster holiday in Saudi all over his Instagram. When, you know, I, I'm, I'm a realist. I think if you need to put food in your family's table or you need the money in a sincere way, then I, un- I understand that is a, a much greyer area. He was in the blackest of black and the whitest of white of areas. He did not need to take any of this money. And yet he paraded himself and his social media all over Instagram to take the hundred mm. whatever million it was from Saudi Arabia this year. And he's going to do it for the next six, seven years. This is a regime where even just during this World Cup, 12 men were executed by sword for nonviolent drug offences. And that's not to speak of mm. the embedded horrors of the regime. And I look at him now and I know you've got to separate art and artist at times. And, and there are moments where he does something and, I, and it, you know, because I've loved Messi my whole football watching life, that you kind of come alive and you go on. But he's leaving me cold and I don't want him to win the World Cup and I don't want Argentina oh. to the World Cup. I want it to blow up in his face because of this. Okay. I think it's abhorrent what he's done. I really do. I, I can't believe he's done it. it and I, I'm in a minority I, I, and it's very po-faced, I know. But I don't disagree with you. I... I like I think everything you said is absolutely true. He didn't need to. There's something incredibly myopic and very disappointing. I mean, profoundly disappointing oh. that someone, a hero to millions and millions would, you know, who's wealthier, wealthier than most of us could ever dream of being, that he's going to take this money. And interestingly enough, maybe it's not the biggest thing, but like come when the, when he's going to be leading the Saudi campaign, for the 2030 World Cup, where Argentina are also vying to host the World Cup. And yeah. I just find, um, but I, and, you know, and, and it is hypocrisy, for sure, on my part. I suspend that judgment for this. And I saw a stat yesterday, a thousand, so last night he had his thousand game, his thousand professional game, 789 goals, 348 assists, which is the most recorded in football history. That's 1.137 goals or assists per game. Like, they're they're actually breathtaking statistics that we'll never, ever, ever see again. Totally. I I have stopped um, seeking kind of moral validation or or, or sort of like my own, say, moral standards uh, in other people, maybe. But no, in in athletes at that level. I just don't expect any more. I think Mm. part of it is probably from covering boxing for the last five or six years where they'll jump at the opportunity mm. to go into business with the Saudis or whoever, yeah. right? And and I've just uh, maybe become we- so weathered by that that I don't look at Messi through a prism of, of um, expectation that he will uh, meet the kind of values that I would have in my own life. Um, there is a degree to which I can separate the art from the artist. I think if I was to go down the road of uh, viewing this World Cup or Messi's participation in it through a moral prism, I probably wouldn't be able to watch the World Cup at all. Sure. But I, in actual fact, as a sports fan at the moment, I kind of need it. I need it the same way as most people do, just a little bit of escapism from the day-to-day rat race. It's, it's mostly good football. It's on TV. Uh, I've made the decision to watch it. And with that in mind then, I can temporarily park any issues I would have with how Messi has made his, his extracurricular money yeah. over the last while. Uh, he still makes me make involuntary noises when he does things on the pitch and I'm for the moment going to go with that uh, and I do want to see Argentina win it. I also love Argentina like a, a, as a footballing nation. Yeah. It's not just about him. I would say though if they do win it 
maybe there'll be a period of self-examination afterwards where I kind of reflect on, yeah, should I really have been supporting it? For the moment, I'm kind of just going with instinct. I'm still enjoying I watching it. 100% fair. 100% fair. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice. On this but I, 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 the part I feel is, is that I'm going to park and then once the World Cup is over, then I'm going to start hammering Messi for taking the Saudi money. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Uh, there's a very interesting piece, page nine of Sunday Independent. It's also in The Observer, just worth a mention. Diverse mix is music to guitars, ears is the headline. Uh, it, this is about the fact that as the last 16 sa- uh, stands, it has been, uh, it's the most diverse last 16 we've ever had in World Cup history. So the African nations, they've matched their best performance in qualifying. So two of the five entrants, Morocco and Senegal, are through to the knockout stages. African teams have won a record seven matches in Qatar and then on the Asian front they've equaled the 2002 high water mark uh, once you include Australia and they've fallen under the Asian banner since 2006 and Nick Ames and it's just a very good informative piece is trying to figure out what conclusions we can draw from this and there's obviously a hesitancy to rush to anything too concrete given it's just one World Cup Uh, so he, he, he notes for instance it was very striking to hear the Moroccan coach after a draw with Croatia came out and said, we played like a European team. That's why I'm so happy. If we played Brittany and lost, everyone would be very upset. But we played in a very solid way, like a European team. And it made it difficult for Croatia to play against us. And Nick Ames writes, it suggests that in football, uh, there are a few secrets. The intensely drilled methods honed in the Premier League, Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A may finally have seeped down into the more chaotic realm of the international game. He does say, on one level, such assessments breed discomfort. The instinctive thought is that Asian and African sides should not feel compelled to eschew their own styles in deference to theories honed in Manchester, Munich and Madrid. Homogenisation should not be the only way. And he makes the point South American teams have often trodden their own uh, path. But that um, that European benchmark maybe has uh, spread a little bit more throughout the world. And there are few more, fewer and fewer uh, secrets, fewer and fewer uh, differences in lots of teams as well. So the most diverse last 16, I think um, it's only going to continue to go that way, I would suggest. Yeah, one of the redeeming features of the World Cup, I suppose, has been the fact that particularly the um, the teams from Arabic nations have for the most part been thriving, apart from the host nation, obviously. And uh, even just reading about it without being over there, the sense of kinship they have between each other, whereas European countries at this point would be ver- like actively rooting against their neighbours in good fun, um, but due to rivalries. Whereas like Tunisia, apparently the fans who remain over there are like fully invested in their neighbours, Morocco, and uh, their progression. And one of the, I suppose, interesting aspects to this, and actually uh, David Walsh made this point in a separate piece. I'm not even sure if it's in the paper or if it's, if it's just online, but is that like, it's the first time where um, a lot of those countries have felt close enough to being on home soil at a World Cup and where everybody else has felt uh, like extremely foreign, actually. And if you grew up in like Western civilization, pretty much anywhere, Ireland, UK, Europe or uh, America, Australia, we probably know less about this region than we do anywhere else in the world, right? So you're going over there to a degree into the unknown. Obviously, players have phones and uh, are advised as to what it's going to be like in Qatar, but um, you're still uh, going into sort of unknown territory to a degree. And, And I would say that there is an extent to which that can actually affect 
teams when they're there as well. Just that uh, feeling of being somewhere very foreign. Whereas like if you're a Latin team playing at a South American World Cup or whatever, um, there's just probably more similarities and, and there's a degree of comfort from that. So like to see the Arabic nations thriving at it has been really enjoyable. I'd love to see Morocco go, like, you know, imagine Morocco getting to like a semi-final or something along those lines. That could be the defining story of this World Cup. And to be totally honest, if Messi doesn't win it, or say if England don't win it, it'll probably still need a defining story from a footballing point of view, so. Well, thankfully, um, Gav, England are going to win it if you read the papers today, fear not. <laughs> uh, so they're in still the feel-good uh, phase, the UK press as they look ahead to the Senegal game this evening. The most in-depth piece on the English togetherness is by Rob Draper. It's in the Mail on Sunday. Howling like wolves with the timing of Eric and Ernie. So this is uh, alluding to how the English team are passing time away from the football. Uh, And it seems it's just a very, very happy camp. That is the uh, thrust of Rob Draper's piece. So, for instance, uh, don't be alarmed if when you're walking by the English hotel, you're hearing the sound of wolves howling, because that is how the English team are spending lots of their time. Their um, routine sees the players enjoying a late evening session of the role play card game Werewolf. It's like a children's party game. Cards are handed out. Some are given the role of wolves. The majority are villagers. And then through a process of interrogation, the villagers have to seek out the wolves who will lie and bluff their way through pretending to be villagers. Connor Cody, one of the strongest, most extroverted personalities in the squad, organises the game as moderator. He's in the middle, running it like a TV game show host, said one observer. So it seems often 12 or 15 of the squad uh, sit around playing late into the evening. Uh, He says, Rob Draper in the piece, on the simplest level, it's good, wholesome fun. On another, it's a sign of how far England have come. And the same observer makes the point, you never have as much time to be as good tactically as your club. So it is about team spirit as well. And uh, the piece reflects on Capello's 2010 camp in Rustenburg, which was fairly miserable and fairly strict to the point where tomato ketchup and butter and all that business was very much uh, the focus, not being allowed. Roy Hodgson era, which is not that long ago, apparently the players all disappeared still to be on their playstations and away from each other in the room, whereas now this English team are very much together. And then the piece focuses a lot on Gareth Southgate's man management. And for instance, he spends a lot of time with the players away from international duty. He travelled to Dortmund last spring to spend time with Jude Bellingham, a teenager navigating being on the brink of superstardom, yet also living abroad. Dortmund were said to have been hugely impressed and appreciative pieces. Well, last summer, despite the fact Marcus Rashford hadn't been in the squad for a year, Sauke took time over the summer to be with him. After all, Rashford was one of the trio players at the centre of the racist backlash for the missed penalties against Italy. And uh, they had a good talk and Rashford apparently found it all very beneficial. So as things stand, Fionn, England, very, very happy camp. And it's easy to scoff at that, but given... No. Uh, the atmosphere in their camp over the previous 20 years, it's not nothing. Like what Southgate has managed to create here is um, no. pretty impressive. And, and you know, and Southgate invariably has to deal with those ongoing accusations that, you know, other than managing England, what manager, he has no managerial experience. At and, which, lucky, lucky manager. and he's lucky. He's the lucky manager who didn't say. do that well with the under 21s and then got given the big job. But when you look at his record, <laughs> like his record is incredible and compares to all but Alf Ramsey. Um, it's an interesting, you know, and, and what's interesting 
in all of his interviews, Southgate has the demeanour of a man downplaying expectations all the time. Yeah, we didn't... Oh, there's still loads of room for improvement. You know, we're still... Like, he, he seems... He seems very cautious about overpromising. He, um, which to me is a sign of a really smart manager. Um, also, as well as this, these players, these are all, they have been really kind of primed in the heat of superstardom at their clubs. These are players who all know what being in the spotlight is like. They're all media trained. They all know exactly what's required of them and how to stay out of the spotlight. Yeah. Um, these are no longer kind of the, the ingenues of once upon a time that show up and, you know, it's not even, there's, there's, no, there's no young Paul Gascoigne. There's no... Jack Grealish is as close as it gets. And, he's and, and Jack Grealish comes across as the nicest guy. For, like for all his uh, foibles and his missteps, there's a certain feet on the ground aspect Absolutely. Too. And, you know, he, look, even just that celebration for that boy with cerebral palsy, um, Oh, my God, it's the most endearing thing, you know, so all of a sudden you have the whole nation going and never mind the fact that half the country fancies him anyway, because he's a good looking lad. But then you have is that like, oh, my God, look at this guy. He's got his feet in the ground. He's such a nice guy. So so for all of the all of the sniping on the back pages, certainly with some of the newspapers about, oh, England expects. And then when England fails, they'll draw the knives. The fact of the matter remains is that they're in a great, great shape. Mm. I think. Yeah. Jordan Henderson quoted in Miguel Delaney's piece, which is very much the same theme. It's that this group has never been better together. Henderson says, this is the closest group I've ever been a part of at international level. I thought Russia 2018 was close at the time, but we've been through things together. Uh, Russia, the Euros, experiences like that make you stronger. I feel we're in a great place. Really good team spirit, work ethic. We're pushing each other on in training, etc. And Miguel's piece opens in a similar way to Rob Draper's. He says, every night throughout this World Cup, the England team have gathered in a TV room to watch the games. They discuss what they see, etc. They don't sit in cliques. One big group, Jack Grealish often bouncing between people. It has struck staff how so few ever spend time sitting in their rooms on the Playstations. Instead, they spend time together. It's an, achieve- an achievement, I guess, to cultivate that purely based on what has come before. Like, it's interesting in Rob Draper's piece that we'd mentioned just before Miguel's there, he says of the werewolf game and that sense of bond, on the simplest level, it's good, hold some fun. On the other, it is a sign of how far England have travelled. And that's quite a remarkable thing to um, contend with. It's quite the fact damning that this the is, previous era, This really. is seen as growth, yeah, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Just lads sitting around playing a, a card game or whatever. And in the same piece, maybe, you know, 400, 500 words later, uh, Draper says, that's it, get us 4-3-3 wrong tonight and the narrative will change. <laughs> Win tonight and the hysteria will return. So it is, to a degree, the same old story in terms of how it would be publicly perceived either way. But what Fionn was saying there about said Kate um, playing down expectations is... I think a, a contributing factor to probably how grounded the squad seems. Um, but I also think if they don't win a World Cup or if they don't say get to another semi-final, like figuratively, the knife should be out. Like England have arguably the best squad at this tournament, at least second best behind France. I would say. Uh, I think Southgate has done like a, an extremely good job just to uh, change the course of the England football national team over the last uh, six years in that they're not anymore seen as underachievers. Yeah. But like they've only achieved to par based on talent uh, if you look at their squad. So 
like I've often, I'm not one of those neighbours who was sort of graciously uh, will on England at a major footballing tournament. I, I see sport as just a bit of fun and I, I don't want them to win it, right? And I'm actually delighted with the job that Southgate is doing for that very reason because as long as he keeps getting to say semi-finals or finals, um, hopefully he'll remain in the job. I don't actually think that... Uh, excuse me. If he wasn't there, I think they'd be in serious danger of winning something, is what I'm saying. And, and that's not to discredit him in any way. I just think there are far better football managers out there who would probably get the most out of this team. Um, he's done an unbelievable job in terms of building a team environment, but I still feel as though his conservatism or pragmatism holds him back to some degree on the pitch. But no, they'll probably go and win it that I've said that. Like, so. I, I, I'm... <sighs> I think he's done a great job in fighting off the shouts for, oh, you must play this midfield yeah. genius or you must play Trent Alexander-Arnold because he's, you know, the most exciting right back in the game. And as much as one may like to see Phil Foden or the team built around Phil Foden and then Trent Alexander-Arnold drifting into those incredible runs that he makes... Like, he is a pragmatic manager. He's a cautious manager. He's defensively first, which actually reflects the nature of this World Cup anyway, mm. because it is the World Cup of pure pragmatism. You know, whether it's Louis van Kaal or Didier Deschamps or even the Brazilian team, they're very pragmatic in their approach. Um, but I, 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 I'll defend Southgate that it's not the... In the end, it's a kind of a weirdly frustrating football because you're looking, as you said, Gav, like you look at these players and you go, they're so, some of these are so, so good. Mm. And he, and he's holding them back. But yet, you know, their performances thus far, I think, have been more than credible. Like, I think they've been really impressive. I agree. I suppose I go back to the Euros and they did very well to get to the final. But like they were in absolute control of that game until they scored. And they did an almost Irish thing of, of just falling. Uh, um, and it, I don't think it was. Well, I'm, I'm trying to think, was it a conscious or subconscious thing? Maybe both. Where Cheney's changes were exceptional. They were. They were as well, in fairness. But to completely lose impetus of a game yeah. that you were in control in say something. And like England should have won that final. Yeah. Uh, and even going back to the, their semi-final with Denmark, a, a similar thing happened. And like they have a far better team than Denmark. So I, I do think there is a higher ceiling or, or a greater capacity uh, to England than what we've seen so far. And listen, the tournament isn't over yet, so we might see it yet. No, I know lots of people listen to this on a Monday. So presumably if England lose tonight, there'll be headlines like werewolf shame, England players distracted on eve of game <laughs> due to card game obsession. Uh, etc. They'll be turned on very, very quickly. We'll take a short break. Final few pieces with Gavin Fiona in just one second. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. You're welcome back. Final couple of stories on the paper review. So... There are a number of pieces looking ahead to the Champions Cup next week on the rugby front and there's definitely a sense, you know, Neil Francis in particular, that the competition is not where it used to be and Brendan Fanning is talking about the influx of the South African sides as we enter year 28 and he's saying it feels like a new era. The other interesting, uh, I suppose, rugby theme is, again, a little bit focused on our friends across the Irish Sea, but Eddie Jones. So Stephen Jones in the Sunday Times says, it's done, it's over. Eddie, it needs to, you need to go. I thought the most cutting piece, and you picked this out, you both did, was Mike Brown, former England player, in the Mail on Sunday, were effectively having experienced some of Eddie Jones and having spoken to people currently experiencing Eddie Jones. He paints 
an atmosphere of well it's anti uh, Gareth Southgate an atmosphere of fear is what he says yeah uh, very it, damning it's a very damning piece um, some of the quotes are really um, really startling like speaking from my own experiences and hearing from others he says the England team is an environment of fear players are scared of making mistakes and I believe that reflects what is delivered in the pitch um, Eddie's Eddie's the leader of that environment. Why have there not been more questions uh, asked about the massive turnover of staff in any other business sphere? That would be a red flag. You hear of guys signing NDAs when they leave their posts. Why don't they want them to talk? Um, and that really, it just feels that if you're writing an article like that, it's open season on Eddie Jones. Yeah. And, um, you know, just saying this is that like, just even just mentioning my own experiences and having spoken to others. So, Clearly, he's speaking to people within the camp. Yeah. Mm. And that's the real value, isn't it, of a columnist who is still very well connected yeah. in the game. It's actually, I'm, I'm a conduit to get some of the word out officially. I've got my mates in there. This is what they're telling me. So, you know, there are other people obviously calling out Eddie Jones in the papers. But when it's this almost direct to the squad, it's like, oh, oof, and you'd case wonder, closed. You wonder in which order that process takes place as well is that Mike Brown texting around a couple of guys who he knows will talk or is that a couple of guys texting Mike Brown going you have a column don't you because he does Uh, say I've seen firsthand if you challenge Eddie like Danny Kerr Danny Cipriani Alex Good then you get moved on very very quickly and he makes the point that you know if Bill Sweeney he's the head of the RFU if he's to ring Owen Farrell Etoje Marcus Smith are they going to throw Eddie under the bus they won't want to risk their place in the team and who can blame them it's your dream to play for your country plus you get up to £20,000 sterling a game so uh, he's, he, he's he's making that point that actually we can't rely on the players here to stick their heads above the parapet but it's also a question of timing because if England were playing brilliant winning rugby all the time which they have done under Jones for periods. Yes, and less so now. Or they, they, There's something not right. Now, I'm, I'm not a big rugby expert, but something clearly isn't working the way it did. You know, they show flashes and then, um, like the draw against New Zealand was like a rem- was as much about England's doggedness in the second half as it was about New Zealand just handing them the ball and going, yeah. take it. But if, so that even that comment about like, if you challenge Eddie, is like when things are going well, like a good manager challenge is like that it's the old Alex Ferguson thing mm. you know they'll move you on that's it no 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 this uh, is like th- there is such a failure of journalism to sports journalism very much myself included everyone included to actually provide any insight as to what is going on yeah and honestly because things are going well with England Gareth Southgate the lads hands off approach emotional intelligence they play werewolf it's great you say that's brilliant and Eddie Jones's culture of fear uh, is painted as toxic Whereas flip it all around, it would be Southgate, he's too soft on the players, they're running the show. Whereas Eddie Jones, it's no nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Disciplined. With Jones and the culture of fear, let's say, right? If you go back to the miracle in Brighton where he coached Japan to their historic victory over South Africa at the World Cup, like a lot of people said afterwards uh, that had Jones remained with Japan after the World Cup, even after that historic victory, some of Japan's prime players, not even just veterans, but guys in their prime were going to retire from international rugby. So I don't think this is a new um, association that we're hearing with Jones. And I would say that that's almost a little bit of an antidote to what you're saying, Joe, even though I completely agree with you. Like it's, it's ultimately scoreboard stuff at the end of the day, but that even when things were going well with Japan at that time, there was a sense from those players 
And bear in mind as well how, how uh, in Japan, like the uh, work ethic, like the actual culture is to work extremely hard in most cases. And they were applying that to rugby and it was still seen as a, too extreme by a lot of those players. And if you think like, that's going back, what's that, like seven years ago? 2015, yeah. yeah and I like, guess with Jones, that was always talked about as well. Look, if you want the genius, yeah. this is the... And silly pain that just comes with them, and that's the way it is. But if you zoom out then on, on sort of world sport and how um, how much it has morphed, sort of socially, even in that seven year time frame, true. Where a lot of the players who um, England have in their squad now, like it's a fairly young squad actually, are completely different human beings and were raised in a very different way to even the Japan players that Jones had in 2015. And I'm not saying for a second that he hasn't um, shifted his methods along the way, but they may still be way too hardline for a current crop of players. I also think like it's all well and good to have us having this conversation about Jones's future. Like the RFU have probably like a fortnight to make a call on this either way. If they leave it, go beyond that, it's going to interfere with the next guy's preparation for the Six Nations. Yeah. If they leave it, go beyond the Six Nations, it's too late. That's too late. Jones then. is your yeah. guy. You've got maybe three warm-up games and Bob's your uncle. So we're going to probably be talking about it more quite soon either yeah. way. Well, there's a, a panel, a committee gone in there now, Ian McGeeken amongst them. And again, Mike Brown is saying, look, he's a legend, but we need people more in touch with high performance, modern era rugby to be making this decision. So that's the way the RFU have gone, though. Fionn, you were not a GAA man, I think it's fair to say. No. Uh, there was a piece that you thought was a good yeah, read. Yeah, Michael Foley's piece on Kilmacud Croaks in the Sunday Times, I thought was really, really interesting. They're in a Leinster final in both codes both, today. In both yeah. codes, yeah. So, and, and obviously, the dominant team in club football in Leinster... Um, you know, and seen much as, as, as a kind of club equivalent to, to the dubs, as in they have all Super the power. resources, all yeah. the money, all the, you know, they get Shane Walsh, et cetera, et cetera. But this piece kind of sees them within the context of recent Irish history. So Kilmacud, the Croaks were founded in 1966. Um, so Pat Sheridan was talking, it quoted here, we started from nothing. You had to go looking for everything you got. And posits the establishment of Croaks at a time when Ireland was becoming urbanised, that it was moving, making that transition from a largely rural country to a much more urban one and that Kilmacud Croaks represent that urbanisation. And uh, so, and it says, Kilmacud is the direct product of that changing Ireland, somehow mustering the resources to buy their own home, offered somewhere to go for children who never had a place uh, before to play Gaelic games. The emergence of Colosta Own to augment the players coming from St. Lawrence's school offered a new nursery. And, and it goes on in this vein. I just think it's a very interesting article. Is it? It, it, rather than because as for me, Croaks would be very much kind of a, a modern team, but to see them as very much an integral part of recent Irish history, I thought was a very good. Uh, it's a yeah, very yeah. reflective piece. That intersection of sport and society yeah. is... It's very interesting, especially GEA in Dublin, the way it's transformed over the last 30, 40 years. There isn't, Gav, I was curious to see, would there be, there, there is not a, a huge, uh, maybe not at all, actually, um, amount of Tyson Fury's win last night. Oh, I thought I'd get away with it, Joe, to be honest. Yeah. So he beat Chisora in yeah. Yeah. knockout? Uh, yeah, 10th round stoppage. 10th round yeah. stoppage. What are we to say about this classic? Uh, little, if possible. Yeah. Uh, no, in fairness, look, as soon as this fight was made, it felt disgusting, actually, because Chisora has recently been in so many really tough fights. Uh, he's 39 years of age. He's lost four of his last five, and he somehow gets a world title challenge against a guy who is unequivocally going to 
take his head off, figuratively. Um, what was the motivation on Fury's part there? Was it to give Chisora a payday? Was this uh, helping a friend? Or I what mean, was it, this? To, it may have been part of it. Like, you and I had a conversation on this show um, midweek at one point about why Fury and Joshua wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Right? This is maybe six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, something along those lines. And I was saying that I think Fury is... Um, proposing a fight with Joshua, which he knows he is not, absolutely not going to happen before the end of the year, so that he can then come out and say, Joshua, you're a coward. I have to fight somebody. I have to keep active. And he's going to take a soft touch, probably get a big payday in front of 60,000, 80,000 fans. And I think that's exactly how it actually transpired. And the fact that it was against a friend of his is of, you know, um, w- w- was probably like a, a motivating factor insofar as, yeah, you're helping out a buddy who's at the tail end of his career. I actually think watching the fight... Fury held back for a lot of it. I think he probably could have ended it at any point, and that's not to take away from Chisora's like absolute toughness. Um, but it was quite uncomfortable to watch. It was, but the, there's no point. This isn't sort of retrospective um, mm. uh, or pointing on something like that I didn't say at the time when it was made, and not just me. This fight was never right for you. It was never right for anybody who follows boxing. Yeah. Everybody saw this coming. Everybody knew which way the result was going to go. Um, I would say at this point, and I would have said it even before this point, before this fight, anybody who invites Derek Chisora back into a ring at that level of boxing um, probably has no morals, really. Okay. Because th- that's a man who's taken enough punishment that you should, uh, and knowing what we know about boxing and contact sports, generally speaking, if you have any humanity about you, you should not be using him as part of your business pursuits, or at least you should not be putting him in harm's way as part of your business pursuits, because uh, I would say that um, there is a huge danger, at least, that he'll be feeling the effects of last night and his more recent fights in years to come. Right. And then, and who's going to be responsible for it? Like, who's going to be culpable? Absolutely nobody. The show will go on. Um, and so that's where I'd also have issue with Fury, uh, allowing Chisora to take that fight. It's all well and good giving her buddy a payday, and it's all well and good holding back, as I think he did, in some of those rounds, it, there was there was an extent to which Fury actually looked uncomfortable with it at I times see, last really. night, and I would have said like you know if you were really to look out for your friend, you should have probably told him or tried to convince him to walk away before it came to this. Oh, it's far grimmer spectacle than I'd actually realised. That's awful. Yeah, it's always fun when we're talking about boxing, you and I, isn't it? And what was the atmosphere in the stadium? Were they baying for blood or do you think even they sensed the slightly odd nature of this spectacle? I'm not sure. And it's weird with events like that. I, I don't know that there would be 60,000 ardent boxing fans in England, right? Like actual um, day-to-day boxing fans. Sure. They're more event goers. And I think to... Fury's an event. Exactly. Yeah. And, and a massive sporting personality there now. And they probably were going to see destruction, right? That's probably your instinct if you're... Uh, paying to go to a fight and you're not necessarily um, a massive fan yes um and there were certainly boos when the fight was stopped and uh, t- to be honest as well joe like his corner had so many opportunities where they could have and should have intervened and i know like that bond between cornerman uh trainer and fighter is an absolutely sacred one and there's every chance that Derek Chisora, who is a pretty objectively weird guy by the way may have the re- a sort of a relationship with the people who work with him where he has said to them by no means uh, under the sun ever take me out of a fight like that L- allow me to die like he's a he's a weird enough guy where he would probably die in pursuit of what he sees as greatness and the thing is like as a cornerman you should not obey that even if you make the bond with him you know 
like use common sense when the time comes and they didn't and Victor Lachlan the referee should have stopped it far earlier I got the sense that he may have felt there could be a little bit of trouble for me if I stop this too early because it's such a mis mismatch from the outset uh, the paying fans the people who bought it on uh, box office will be aggrieved I might get it in the year uh, so many parties involved uh, should have stopped it earlier but Predominantly, it comes back to me, um, or, or for me, it comes back to the fact that it shouldn't have been made in the first place. Okay. Well, listen, it's important just to say neither uh, those in Chisora's corner nor the referee are here to give their account of last night. And uh, I have no doubt they would argue strongly they were acting with total integrity and uh, viewing the fight as they saw it and using their experience and, and saw that Chisora was fit to carry on. But I do take it that's your personal uh, Absolutely. sense of they, last they, night. Absolutely. Uh, just worth to reiterate. Yeah, for sure. I think they would argue as much and it literally is just my opinion based on what I saw. Fellas, we're out of time. That was uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Fionn. Thanks, Joe. Golf Weekly Takeover was a great success. And Gavin Casey, the 42. Thanks, Gav, as ever. Cheers. Cheers, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.